Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. El resultado de la votación... Political deadlock in Spain is over. After a snap, inconclusive general election in the summer, not everyone believed that Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez would manage to form a coalition and stay in power. But he did. A Don Pedro Sánchez como presidente del gobierno. What did it take? A long time, painful negotiations, an amnesty for hundreds of Catalan separatists, a spat with Brussels and just last weekend, mass protests in Madrid and other cities across the country. Pedro Sánchez will remain Prime Minister for a second term. But at what price? I'm Suzanne Lynch. On this episode of EU Confidential, we discuss the turmoil in Spanish politics and its spillover into Brussels, which could affect next year's European Parliament elections. Later, we get an update on the EU's trade negotiations. I spoke with Mauro Vera, Brazil's foreign minister, earlier this week in Brasilia. Brazil currently holds the presidency of the Mercosur Group. That's a group of four South American countries which has been in trade talks with Brussels for almost 25 years. An agreement was reached in 2019, but is still not in force. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? We are not happy at all. Uh, we cannot uh, accept restrictions and sanctions uh, imposed on the, the Mercosur side. If this is not negotiable, so we will not have a, a deal. But first, let's begin with a dramatic few weeks in Spanish politics. I'm joined by my colleagues, Aitor Hernández Morales, who's been covering the ins and outs of this Spanish saga, and Nick Vinicor, Politico's editor-at-large. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining. Hey, Suzanne. Hi, great to be here. So, Aitor, first to you, you've been covering the developments in Spain. Bring us up to speed on where things stand now. Well, the four-month telenovela that uh, Spain has been living has finally come to an end, or at least this chapter has come to an end. So on Thursday, the Spanish parliament confirmed Pedro Sánchez as prime minister, which is, I, I really want to emphasize, a remarkable turn of events. When Sánchez called elections last May, his party had been destroyed in regional and local elections. They had lost power in basically every major uh, Spanish city. 
And it really looked like he was a political cadaver to the point where there was speculation he might come up to Brussels and, and accept a job at, at NATO. Instead, he's flipped the narrative. First, he, he managed this uh, miracle of performing relatively well in the uh, summer elections on July 23rd. And his second miracle, I would say, is cobbling together this uh, parliamentary alliance and figuring out a way to bring the Catalan separatist group Junts back into the fold and to get them not only to agree to back him, but to agree to certain tenets of the of the Spanish constitution, which really help reestablish, or at least they hope, a constructive dialogue with one of the most radical of the Catalan separatist parties. So this issue about the Catalan separatist party, this is the issue that has proved the most controversial over the last couple of weeks. And the reason we've seen protests in Madrid and other cities Explain to us what the government has decided to do in order to get this party on board and form part of the government. Well, the Catalan separatist uh, Junts party is its de facto leader is the former Catalan president, Carlos Puigdemont. Now, Puigdemont was responsible for that 2017 uh, independence referendum in Catalonia, which we all know uh, failed. It was it was declared illegal. And in the immediate aftermath, he had to flee Spain basically because authorities were seeking to arrest him. He ended up fleeing to Brussels, and many of us know him from the European Parliament, where he serves as an MEP. One of the uh, key demands from Junts in exchange for its support was an amnesty not only for Puigdemont, but for everyone else prosecuted for actions related to the Catalan independence movement over the past decade. That was a very big pill for Sanchez to swallow, especially because Sanchez had spent literally years saying that such an amnesty would be illegal, that it would run afoul of the Constitution. And yet, here we are. An amnesty bill was presented on Monday by Sanchez's Socialist Party. It extends to all the people that we mentioned before. So we're talking about roughly 300 uh, people that in different levels of the Catalan government were indicted for their participation in that referendum, but also many other just normal people who have been prosecuted for participating in protests or other actions related to that separatist movement. In the rest of Spain, this has not gone down particularly well. There's just been a lot of anger, mainly because amnesties are not a particularly common thing in this country. Most people can only remember the 1977 amnesty, which was declared during Spain's transition to democracy. And it was a broad political amnesty that sought to pacify the situation in the aftermath of the death of dictator Francisco Franco and the end of his regime. Now, that amnesty was motivated basically by a regime change, by the fact that Spain was fundamentally uh, changing the way it operated and the next year it would pass its, uh, its uh, 1978 constitution, which is the one that is, is still in effect. Sanchez's amnesty or this Catalan amnesty, uh, meanwhile, is, is basically motivated by the need to form a government. And many people are upset. Sanchez, of course, argues that this is, you know, a step that is going to help facilitate coexistence in Spain and improve Spanish unity by bringing the Catalan separatists back into the fold and, and starting that dialogue. But that hasn't necessarily convinced all Spaniards and certainly hundreds of thousands have turned out for protests over the past few weeks. It looks like, though, it's going to succeed for Sanchez. He's now uh, won the backing of a majority of lawmakers in the Spanish Parliament. He's going to be Prime Minister. We'll hear from Nick in a moment about uh, some of the repercussions in the EU, but it, it does seem to have worked for him. Is, is that the case? And what kind of a government now are we going to have in Spain? It's a remarkable vindication of his gamble. 
because, you know, when he called those snap elections in May, polls had the center-right popular party ahead. And though the center-right popular party did score the most votes in that summer election, it just wasn't enough to be able to form a government. Sanchez has really managed to find a way to remain in power. In terms of the sort of government that he's going to head, so we already know that he's going to form a coalition with the left-wing Sumar group. The real question is if that coalition is going to be able to pass any major legislation. And that's basically because they will have to rely on this uh, broad uh, swath of uh, separatist and uh, left-wing groups that have backed them now, that have given Sanchez their vote of confidence. And when you really start looking at their policies and ideological positions, these groups are radically different. Just to take one example, when you look at the groups representing the Basque country, you have the Basque Nationalist Party, which, you know, does support Basque nationalism, as its uh, name implies, but is a fundamentally conservative, socially conservative, economically conservative party, whereas the other party with representation, Bildu, is a far-left party that has incorporated members of the now-defunct terrorist group, ETA. So uh, we're talking about groups that, sure, they've agreed to back Sanchez, but will they agree on some broad uh, economic policy? It's it's very unlikely. And that's going to make it difficult for Sanchez to bring uh, legislation forward. But what we should keep in mind is that people expressed the same doubts about his previous government, which was the first coalition government in Spain since the 1930s, and they passed plenty of progressive legislation. So Nick, turning to you, fascinating analysis there from ITOR about what's been happening in Spain. But there is an EU angle to this. Uh, Tell us more. Right. Well, we're in the Game of Thrones of influence and power uh, going into the European Parliament election uh, next year. And obviously, uh, Spain was uh, potentially in the conservative camp um, and is now looking like it's going to be one for, for the socialists. So this is a very, very big prize. And there's basically a fight going on between the center left and the center right over this proposed reform for Pedro Sanchez to form a government. Uh, we're really seeing the rhetoric getting very heated as it hasn't been since Qatargate. Mm, because as you say there, the EPP, the centre-right political family, they had been hoping that one of their own would win the Spanish election. That didn't happen. And instead, Sanchez, a socialist, is on course. Uh, so as you say, uh, you know, a valuable prize there in terms of who controls power in the different political groups in Brussels. And of course, Nick, this tension between the EPP, the European People's Party, and the socialists and the other political groups in the parliament has huge knock-on effects also for next year when we're going to have the reshuffling of top EU jobs that will follow the European Parliament elections in the summer. Absolutely, in several ways. I mean, one thing is that the EPP and the Socialists essentially work as a coalition in Parliament. They work together to support the Commission's agenda and have done for the past five years. The rising tension, it sort of raises the specter that this coalition may not work so well in the next term or may actually kind of come apart. If they're fighting so openly, this is actually quite uncommon. There's also an implication for top jobs. Portugal's Prime Minister, Antonio Costa, was tipped to be the president of the European Council, the gathering of uh, heads of state and government. And he's now ensnared in a, a corruption scandal in Portugal. So the EPP is firing on that front as well and trying to get him really ruled out of the fight there and trying to weaken the, the socialists. And all this basically 
undermines this kind of a compact between the center-right and center-left. Manfred Weber, the, the de facto leader of the EPP, he's had something to say about the developments in Spain. Absolutely. The Europe's conservatives have been have been firing with both barrels against Pedro Sanchez. The thing they're taking issue with is not just the proposal to amnesty Catalan separatists, but also some of the legal reforms that were proposed as part of the deal to bring the separatists into the government, which includes some provisions about basically oversight of the work of independent judges. And they have taken this on and are calling it a rule of law issue and comparing Spain to Hungary and Poland and saying there's a live rule of law issue in Spain and the European Commission should get involved. And in fact, they did get a bit of support from the European Commission because the Justice Commissioner, Didier Reinders, sent a letter last week to the Spanish government asking for clarification. And now they're studying this law, which which has now been presented and, and could yet say more. So Brussels has been taking note of what's been happening internally in Spain. In terms of this battle between the EPP and the socialists, so what's next? Uh, Weber um, has threatened that this will be on the agenda at the next plenary session in Strasbourg. Exactly. He has said he'd put it on the agenda. As we know, the agenda itself, the setting of the agenda is quite political. For now, there's nothing specifically on Spain, but it's a session about rule of law. And the the EPP could seek to uh, get that on the agenda. But it's a very fast moving story because Pedro Sanchez has essentially formed his government now. And by doing that, he is reinforced in his position of power. And it will basically take a lot of unpicking or it'll take a lot of pressure to undo what he's done, to undo the deal he's made with the separatists. So we'll see where we are next week. Uh, maybe this becomes less urgent. They're fighting a bit of a rear guard battle here. And so they're really just kind of scoring points here. And of course, interesting there that the leader of the socialists in the European Parliament is herself Spanish. And of course, Spain is holding the rotating presidency of the council at the moment. So interesting times. Thanks to Nick and Aitor for that analysis. You're welcome. Thanks. Many thanks, Suzanne. After the break, the EU Mercosur trade talks have been dragging on. Both sides say they want to seal a deal by the end of the year. Can it be done? Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
In a moment, I'll be speaking to Brazil's Foreign Minister, Mauro Vieri, who I met earlier this week in the Brazilian capital of Brasilia, where a meeting of Club de Madrid, an association of former presidents and prime ministers, was taking place. But first, I'm joined by our trade expert here in Politico, my colleague Camille Gaze. Hi there, Camille. Hi, Suzanne. Great to have you with us. Now, we're going to be hearing from the Minister about the ongoing negotiations between the EU and these four Latin American countries known as the Mercosur Group in a few minutes. Could you bring us up to speed about what is Mercosur, what is the trade agreement uh, for some of our listeners? Of course. So the Mercosur Agreement is uh, basically a landmark trade agreement between the EU on one side and the Mercosur countries uh, on the other. So there is Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay. And so basically the negotiations have started in 2000. There was a political agreement in 2019. But since then, the EU has kind of postponed the signature of the trade agreement over deforestation concerns, especially in the Amazon under former Brazilian president. Jair Bolsonaro. So Camille, you mentioned deforestation and we're going to hear a lot about that from the minister. What exactly do you mean by deforestation? Why is it controversial? Yeah, so the deforestation uh, regulation is basically a set of new rules, which is going to soon force EU companies and companies around the world to trace their commodities to the exact plot of land uh, where they were produced and to make sure that it was not on land uh, recently deforested. So, you know, in practice, this is good news, but the trade partners of the EU are kind of worried that it's basically adding more trade barriers for their produce to come to the EU. I see. And obviously, this whole issue about environmental standards, deforestation is a controversial one. We've heard a lot of, from environmental activists over the years about Mercosur. Exactly. So, you know, just in general, in Europe, the public opinion is a bit concerned about the deforestation in the Amazon. And although, you know, the Brazilian government says it's doing a lot of effort, people are not too convinced about it. So, you know, it's it's also a whole kind of a bunch of people to convince on top of the EU countries who are known to be a bit more cautious towards the deal. And we'll hear from the current Minister of Foreign Affairs making this point that they feel that Brazil has now changed, that it's, it's making efforts to address deforestation concerns. And as you say there, this has been going on for some time, for decades now. Why is the idea of a trade agreement with these South American countries so controversial for a lot of EU countries? Yeah, so indeed, there are a few countries who are which are leading uh, the chart, really. So on the one side, we have France, for instance, Ireland also. They fear about their agricultural uh, sector and they fear that, you know, the imports, for instance, of the Mercosur beef could ruin their own domestic industry in general. So and on the other side, you know, the Mercosur countries are also kind of worried about too much exports from the EU manufacturers on their own markets. So things like cars, presumably, you know, German car makers, they could benefit from this because they could increase their exports to South America. Yeah, exactly. And so, for instance, in terms of this, you know, the deforestation concern, Brussels has come forward in March this year with, you know, an extra sustainability document, which basically lists, you know, the new unilateral measures that the EU put forward since 2019, which is 
kind of um, raising the concerns of the Mercosur countries because they feel like their own producers are not going to be able to keep up with these new rules. And so basically the Mercosur countries feel like, you know, the EU is reimposing new demands on their producers and that it's uh, putting a burden on the on them. Now, both sides have said that they want a deal before the end of the year. I mean, it's a very, we've got elections now, runoff elections in Argentina, for example, and we've got our own European elections uh, next year. So we're coming to the end of the European Commission's current mandate. I mean, things have kind of slowed down. I mean, negotiations are going on constantly between the lead negotiators, but a number of roadblocks really have emerged in the, in the last few weeks and months. Yeah, exactly. And so, to be honest, there was a lot of hope in the beginning of the year that, you know, we would be able to seal an agreement between Brussels and the Mercosur countries by the end of the year. Commission President Ursula von der Leyen also pledged for a deal to be done by the end of the year. So did President Lula. But so basically, it's looking increasingly unlikely that we are getting there, especially when it comes to to these roadblocks that we've mentioned, but also the fact that geopolitically, it was really the perfect moment because on the one side, Spain was heading the presidency of the council. On the other, it was Brazil who was heading the presidency of the Mercosur group. So these two countries, Spain and Brazil, were super keen to seal the agreement. But now, as you say, we are looking at the elections in Europe. But this weekend, there is also uh, the second round of the Argentinian elections, which one of the top candidates might be a bit more skeptical towards the deal and uh, towards the Mercosur group in general. Camille, thanks so much for that update. Thanks. Now to our interview with the Foreign Minister of Brazil, Mauro Vieira. I asked him about the state of play when it comes to the Mercosur trade talks with the EU and also about Brazil's position on the Israel-Hamas war. Brazil is currently a member of the UN Security Council and was chairing talks on Israel-Hamas last month. Also, the country is poised to take over the presidency of the G20 from India, so we'll be in the international spotlight over the next 12 months. One theme that connects Brazil and the European Union is the Mercosur trade deal. It's one of the longest running, I think, negotiations that have been going on to try and seal this trade deal between the Mercosur countries and Brussels. Do you think an agreement will be agreed, reached by the end of the year? I hope so. President Lula is very much engaged on that. He wants to have uh, the conclusion of the technical part of the uh, agreement concluded by the mid-December, when it's the, the end of our presidency of Mercosur. We are working very hard. We still have a few issues on the table, but the important thing is the, the, the content of the negotiation, is the, the issues that were pending, that we are making good progress, and we continue to work with the European side. One issue is deforestation. The EU um, has got requirements about deforestation and, and Brazil is not quite happy with what it's been asked to do there by the EU. We are not happy at all. Uh, President Lula has stated since he took office his position and his policy with regards to climate change, with the environment and so on. There's no doubt about the message that he's sending since last COP. COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. And we believe that our system of monitoring is very reliable, very good, and it has to be accepted by the European Union. We cannot uh, accept restrictions and sanctions uh, imposed 
on the, the Mercosur side. If this is not negotiable, so we will not have a, a deal. If we can sit down and agree on this monitoring on both sides, that the, the, the best way to find a solution. You would prefer that the deforestation proposal from the European Commission, that it's not applied to Brazil, that would be your ideal? Not applied to the, the region. It's, uh, we have, we can apply, we can respect the protection uh, of the forests and our policies, but we cannot accept European uh, legislation to be imposed with the methods of the European uh, legislation. We do have our own way to, to, to follow, to monitor the progress. President Lula has just uh, announced this week the results of the deforestation during this, let's say, 10 months, first 10 months of uh, his uh, third term. Uh, the results are great, are fantastic. All the structures of the different ministries involved in the monitoring of the forests is in place again. We are recovering all the structures that we had. So I think it's very uh, a serious. Uh, we have very serious institutions that have to be taken into account their, their work and uh, the, all the mechanisms that we have to monitor. So uh, that's it. We, we need to continue to talk on this basis. We're meeting just as some Brazilian citizens have arrived back in Brazil from Gaza. Can you tell us about that and what kind of negotiations had to happen uh, to get these people out? Well, it was the 10th flight that we have to bring Brazilians or relatives of Brazilians back from Israel, from uh, Palestine, and now this last one from Gaza. And we had 32 uh, Brazilians and relatives on board. We started the negotiations with the parts involved, Israel, uh, also Egypt, uh, shortly after the incidents uh, and the, the war started in, in Gaza. We have been in touch uh, with the government of both sides exactly to negotiate. It involved a lot of work, diplomatic work of negotiation and also uh, support of those people. The majority, they were in North Gaza and so they were moved to the south by our embassy in Ramallah. They helped relocate them in the south and give them shelter, give them uh, food and money. They left uh, Gaza through Rafa. They went to um, Cairo and they flew from Cairo to Brasilia. More generally about the uh, conflict now in the Middle East, what's your view? Do you think it's time for a ceasefire? Well, it, it's more than time for a ceasefire and for a humanitarian action of some kind. That's what we did during the whole month of October, during our presidency of the Security Council. We tried to break a deal that would allow the parts to stop for a while, to allow the, the exit of this region, of this area, of all the, the citizens and the civilians uh, who have nothing to do with what is going on with the war and the fighting. So I think it's more than time that we... Uh, break a deal to have some kind of uh, pause, humanitarian pause, to allow some kind of help to, to the populations and those who are still there, who cannot leave because it's all they have, it's where their family, their houses, everything they have is. So we have to try to find a way to have some kind of relief. Just for our, our listeners in Europe in particular, the view in Latin America, and I know 
you know, not to generalise, but there's been a quite a strong call for a ceasefire in the Middle East and among some of other countries in the region, a very strong criticism of Israel. Do you think that the so-called Global South or Latin America has a kind of a different view to what's happening in the Middle East or that maybe America or Europe takes the view of these countries when it comes to crisis like the Middle East or Ukraine for granted? Well, I I believe that uh, we have uh, a very similar position in so many different areas, specifically with respect to the crisis in the Middle East. Uh, What we see here, what we realize, is that the world has to take some steps. We cannot continue to see this fighting against uh, civilians and shelling of uh, hospitals and so on. We know very well how everything started. We, are, we have a very critic position about everything, but we cannot continue like this, watching bombing of hospitals, of civilian installations. We cross our arms. We have to do something and try to find a solution. And that was Moro Vera, Brazil's foreign minister. And that's all we have for you this week on EU Confidential. Please remember to follow us on your favourite app and email us with opinions or ideas for guests or topics. You can reach us at podcast at politico.eu. Thanks to our executive producer for audio in Berlin, Christina Gonzalez, and Diana Sturis, our senior audio producer here in Brussels. I'm Suzanne Lynch. See you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.